In Isaiah chapter 9, we turn to a very familiar scripture. Isaiah writes, beginning in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Notice again he says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In two chapters prior, we find that Isaiah is told in chapter 7, verse 14, that the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We know in Matthew's gospel that that word Emmanuel is interpreted God with us. I've mentioned many times that's one of my very favorite names that the Bible ascribes to the Lord Jesus Christ, God with us. Um, I'm thankful that he actually dwelt among men for a period of time, uh, some 2,000 years ago. But I also know through the word of God that he continues to dwell with us. While he may not be here in a physical way, we know that he is still within us. The Bible says in Colossians that he's Christ in us, the hope of glory. And we're never alone while we walk in this world, while we journey here upon this earth, because we always have the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He continues to be God with us. And that's comforting to me to know that uh, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, uh, that I have the Lord Jesus Christ in me and with me. But also because God was with us literally for three, 33 and a half years, there's coming a day that we will be with God. Because his name is Emmanuel, God with us, the day's coming, we will be with him. And I'm thankful that he's with us. But I'm even more grateful there's a day coming that we're going to be where he is. You know, he said in John chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you, and don't worry, Jesus is not up there as a carpenter, hammering and sawing, building you a place in glory. Where he went to prepare a place was Calvary's cross, and that way is prepared and forever prepared for every child of God. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, that where I am, there ye may be also. So the day's coming, we're going to the house of the Son of God, we call this the house of God because we've set this place aside, consecrated it to serve the living God. And it is, in a sense, the house of God. But really what's the house of God here this morning is the people of God here assembled. But there is a day we're going to the house of the Son of God where he dwells, heaven itself, uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. So here in Isaiah chapter 9, he says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. That's interesting language. He said a child is born. That speaks of the uh, humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says a son is given. That speaks of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born. In other words, there was a time in which the Lord Jesus Christ had no humanity whatsoever. He's always been deity. He's always been uh, the second in the Godhead. He's always been God. Uh, that's never altered. That's never changed. Uh, there's, there's never been any deviation from that whatsoever. There was a time on earth that his glory was covered uh, by his humanity, but he was always God, and we could see that throughout his life here upon the earth. 
uh, when he could speak to the wind and the waves and the sea would obey him and it would be an instant calm. When he could speak to the wild beast when he was there in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and none of them would bother him like they might you or I, it showed his great power. Uh, when he spoke to the dead and they were raised to life again, when he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, when the lame were able to walk and the dumb were able to speak, there's no doubt of the power of the Son of God that he certainly is God's eternal Son. But there was a time in history when the Lord Jesus Christ did not exist in human form. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. So when the fullness of time, in other words, Jesus came at the right time. When the fullness of the time was come, that means God sent him at exactly the right time in history. It was no accident when Jesus came to this world. It was uh, altogether on purpose. It was altogether by the purpose of God that Jesus Christ came about 2,000 years ago. Uh, God did it exactly on time. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. His son already existed. Made of a woman, though, he would come into this world. The Bible said he would go to the lowest parts of the earth, talking about the womb of his mother Mary. Think about that. The creator of all things, heaven and earth. John tells us in John chapter 1 that all things exist, and all things were created by him, things seen and things unseen. Uh, Colossians says it's by him that all things consist. It's by Jesus that all things continue. But imagine, here he is, the second in the Godhead, and yet he was willing to go so low that he was curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, meaning curiously in a sense that the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary. And this woman who had never known a man conceived a child. And all of a sudden, the Son of God now had taken upon him the form of a servant, the form of man. He became man so that you and I would be delivered uh, from our sin and someday from death's grasp and be with the Lord forever in glory. Uh, Jesus Christ uh, came as a son, it says. Here he was, a child born. His humanity he took on. But thankfully, as deity, he never did uh, have to be created. He already was. I love what Isaiah says. Isaiah lets us know, God speaking, he says, There were no gods before me, neither shall there be any gods after me. He says, I, even I, am God alone. Uh, he is the only God. Now, the Bible lets us know that the uh, God that we serve is made up of three parts. The Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're three, yet they're one. They're so uh, united together, it's hard to uh, try to even in our minds comprehend that they're actually three. But the Bible teaches they're three, but yet at the same time, they're all together one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ was made of a woman, but God sent his son. So here we find in the Lord Jesus Christ, in that one man, uh, dwelt two natures. You had the nature of man and you had the nature of deity combined together. And he was altogether man and altogether God. So here Isaiah says, unto us a child is born. Uh, he had to take on humanity. But notice that he goes on to say, and a son is given. He already existed, so God sent his son into this world. He says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Notice it just says one shoulder. It doesn't say shoulders. I find in Luke the 15th chapter when the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe speaking of himself, talking about a lost sheep, uh, having 90 and 9 safely in a fold, one astray, what did the Lord do? The Lord would go out after the one 
uh, he would go through the thistles and the briars of this world to gather up one of his lost sheep. And when he found the one sheep, what did he do? He took the one sheep and put it upon his shoulders, plural, not just one shoulder. The government of this world all is upon one shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ. How would you like to be the President of the United States today to have the weight of government upon your shoulders? I wouldn't want that job. I think there's something wrong with people who do want the job. Uh, something not quite right with them. Uh, the weight of that responsibility, I can't even begin uh, to comprehend to be the leader of 330 million people thereabout and to be their uh, representative here in this day. That's an awesome responsibility. But for the Lord Jesus Christ, all the government of all the world, and we're not just talking about political government. We're talking about the government of mankind in general, the government of creation, the government of, uh, of the animals that uh, roam the earth and fly in the sky, that swim in the sea. All of that rests upon the shoulder of the Lord Jesus Christ. But thank God he's able to bear uh, that which has been placed upon him in that responsibility. So he says again, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. His name, first of all, is Wonderful. Uh, and obviously when you start to just think about uh, the activity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the devotion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He certainly is full of wonder. Uh, when I just stop and consider uh, for a small moment uh, the nature of Jesus, uh, the kindness of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the compassion that he has, uh, the fortitude and the persistence of his love towards you and towards me, uh, what he accomplished for us at Calvary and what he's promised for us at the last day, everything in between, when I consider what all he means to me and I trust what all he means to you, uh, no wonder his name would be called Wonderful. Uh, he causes people if they truly stop and think to be full of wonder as they consider him. He's called wonderful but he's also called counselor. <laughs> you know that he's the best counselor that's ever been. In uh, Romans chapter 11 uh, this question is asked. Uh, who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Did God have to counsel with you when he made this world? Uh, did God have to take counsel with scientists and so forth before he could create this earth? He did not. He just took counsel with himself. Uh, he didn't have to counsel with anybody else. God is all, uh, all together, all that he needs. He didn't need the help of any. And so he created this world out of nothing. He spoke and all of a sudden what we see exists. And over the course of six days, God began to speak. And as he would speak, uh, the various parts of creation that you and I behold uh, came into existence out of nothing. Uh, God just simply would speak and then it would be made. Can you imagine such power and such authority? And here we see this world that is so uh, wonderfully made. And we consider even our own bodies, as David would say when he would look at himself and think about it. He says, here we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Here our bodies, when they're functioning as they ought to, how that our nervous system works, uh, how our uh, uh, circulatory system works, how our muscular system works, uh, how our skeletal uh, structure uh, system works, uh, how our digestive system works, on and on and on. You can just think of all the various functions of the human body. And when we're in our prime and it's working like it's designed, it's how, how amazing it is. No wonder David would say, here we are fearfully and wonderfully made. <laughs> 
God didn't counsel with anybody about that. God didn't ask us how we wanted to be made. Uh, God didn't uh, inquire of us. He didn't exist for him to ask. He didn't go to the angels and say to them, uh, what do you think we ought to do here? Uh, he just counseled among himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So again, who had known the mind of the Lord or who had been his counselor? None. Uh, no one. He took care of it all on his own. And if the same God... <laughs> who could take care of creation all by himself. Do you think a matter as important as redemption of the elect family of God, he would leave that up to our counsel? Do you think he would do such, if he didn't require or need our counsel uh, to create this world, do you think that he would ask our counsel in the matter of our redemption? Absolutely not. If God loved us before the world began, if God knew us in an intimate way and elected us to be predestined to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be with him in glory at the last day, do you think that he would take the chance uh, uh, to leave a part of our redemption up to our counsel and our advice to him? Absolutely not. Uh, if he didn't need our counsel in creation, he doesn't need our counsel in redemption as well. So here he is, uh, uh, the, the one called Wonderful. His name is Counselor and then the mighty God. We could go all over the scriptures and see displays of that name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The mighty God. Not that I trust we all know that, but just stop and think. Uh, throughout the word of God, when God would step in in a mighty way, I can think in my own experience how many times God has stepped in and shown himself to be the mighty God. And I'm thankful for the displays and the word of God in my own experience to know that the God that we serve is not a weak God. He's not a God that's mediocre in power. He is a God who's mighty in battle. He's mighty to save. I love the descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ and God who sits in heaven. He's enthroned in glory, enthroned in power, doesn't need our wisdom, doesn't desire our counsel. He just simply speaks, it's done. He commands and it stands fast. That's the God that we serve. This is the mighty God that when the children of Israel had an army behind them and a sea before them and did not know what they needed to do, did not know what to do. <laughs> they needed counsel, did they not? They saw something wonderful that day. They saw the mighty God operate. Uh, we find that Moses says, you stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. They saw it was wonderful. They saw he didn't need counsel. And they saw he was the mighty God as the Red Sea was parted and they walked across dry shot. And as they looked back, the very ground that they walked upon that was dry consumed uh, the army of Pharaoh. Imagine that. That we, uh, east wind blew all night long and those waters stood on a heap. According to Exodus chapter 15, they were congealed. That's a word we find in the Bible. They were congealed. They were made like jello that day. And that ground that the children of Israel walked upon dry shod, they didn't even have mud on their shoes. The chariot wheels of Pharaoh were bogged down. And when God brought those seas back together, what happened? All of Pharaoh's army was utterly and completely destroyed. They saw the mighty God on display there that day. When they came to the waters of Marah, and they couldn't drink because of the bitterness thereof. And Moses was commanded to take a tree and cast it to the waters. And those waters were made sweet. They saw a mighty God that day. Uh, later on when there was a flinty rock and there was no water to be had. Uh, we find that God commanded Moses to smite the rock. And water came forth to feed over two million individuals out of a dry <laughs> flinty rock. That's the mighty God that we serve. And the same God as we sing that lived in the olden times is just the same today. 
The same mighty God that could deliver the children of Israel over the Red Sea and later uh, uh, deliver them over Jordan's River at flood stage can always deliver you out of whatever trouble is coming to your life. Though the waves of trouble seem to overflow you, just remember there's a God that's always part of the sea and who's part of the river. And he can part the waters of trouble that come into your life and he will. So he's called the mighty God. The everlasting father, we'll come back to that one. And then he says, the prince of peace. You know, when we see the word prince, most of the time we think the son of a king and an heir. In the Bible, that's not typically how this word is used, especially when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. The word prince here typically means one who is in charge of something, one who's in control. What is Satan called? The prince of the power of the air. He has control in this world. God has allowed that. I don't know why, but God has. Right now, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He's also called the prince of this world. That means he is in charge of a lot of what goes on in this world. I find that interesting. You know, the Bible says that the prince of this world is cast down. How? By the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the prince of this world is cast down by the Lord Jesus but he's still the prince of this world. God gets blamed for a whole lot that happens in this world that God had nothing to do with. See, God has allowed Satan some power and some exertion of that control while time exists. And so there's a lot that goes on in this world that's Satan's fault. There's some that goes on that's your fault. Some of it's my fault. And there are some things in a way of affliction or trial that God does allow our sin. Uh, but there's many things that God gets blamed for that God had no hand in whatsoever. Uh, there's something that God is separate from. He has no part with that. Uh, he just simply has suffered it to be so. And I don't know why he suffers it to be so. Maybe one day I'll understand it. I don't know if I will or not. It doesn't matter because one day when I finally have the mind to understand it, all things are going to be peace and I'm not going to care about all the afflictions that I went through. Some people want, well, I need to see how it all worked together. I need to know why this, I don't know that you're going to need to know. <laughs> when you get to glory, and all is well. You won't need to know, number one. And if you do, you're already going to know it. Anyway, he's called the prince. That means he has charge of peace. What a wonderful thing to be in charge of. Satan is the prince, the power of the air. I remember Brother Sonny Powell's years ago when he would get on a radio station back when very few of our preachers did. Uh, at one time, as you know, it was him and Brother Bradley were basically the only two that were on the radio. And you had some preachers that knocked that. And uh, it's interesting. There, you know, there are things that we have brought into the, into the service of God that I would call just aids to worship. They're not additions. They just, just for instance, the broadcast we do every week. Is it an addition to this church? I don't believe it is. It's simply an aid. There's folks in our congregation that are not able to be here uh, because of the infirmities of this life. And that allows them in some small way to be a part of what's going on. Anyway, when Brother Piles, uh, one time there was a minister that was knocking him about it. He said, you know, you shouldn't be on the radio. And he says, why? He says, because the Bible says the devil is the prince of power of the air. And here you are on the air with him. I mean, some people really make some stretches. I remember I, I had a little bit of criticism about our live stream. About two weeks into the pandemic, though, when churches weren't meeting, I found it very interesting. Some of the very men that had knocked me and our church for the live stream all of a sudden had a live stream. Why? Because they didn't have a congregation to preach to, so they found a way to do so. And, you know, they realized all it is was an aid for worship. Anyway, 
the, the realm of Satan, it's real. We all have felt it in our lives. But thank God, the Lord Jesus Christ, so he's the prince of peace. He's the one that has charge. Of, and whose hand would you rather it be in? Would you rather be in your own? In the government, in our nation? In the hands of a minister? In the hands of, No, I want the peace of my life to be in the hands of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where it rests. So he's called Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, he says, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So all this that he has just said, it's happened. God said, I'm going to do it, and he's done it. Now let's back up for the rest of the time to that fourth title of the Lord Jesus Christ, the everlasting father, the everlasting father. That's an interesting word to apply to the Lord Jesus. A lot of times when we think about the Godhead, we think of the father, obviously God, the father. And obviously that's his title. That's who he is. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the son of God. But here he's called the everlasting father. Why is it described in such a way? Father in the Bible does not always mean uh, how we define it in the terms of family genealogy. Uh, father in the Bible does not have to be that this man begat this child. Father in the Bible oftentimes means the originator of something. Uh, we find in the Old Testament, back when you find those who dwelt in tents and those who played instruments, you'll find that the individual who started that was called the father of those that plays music. Uh, the, I can't think of their names right now. And the father of those that dwell in tents. Does that mean everybody that's ever dwelt in a tent has the same father? Back, I think his name was Jewel, but anyway, uh, all the way. No, it means that he was the originator of the idea of dwelling in tents. So when we look at this thing, uh, term father and we put the definition originator on it, now let us read this again. The everlasting father. You know what that means? The father of eternity. <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ is the originator, if you will, of eternity itself. He is the one in whom eternity exists. And he's the one who's given us eternal life. How could he give us eternal life unless, first of all, he's eternal himself. He can't give us something that he's not. And if he doesn't possess eternity in his own hands and in his own power, how could he bestow that to us? He could not. You know, as the creator, he's above us. As the creator, he's above this creation. Now, as a man, he became subject to the creation. We realize that. And there were times that you see clearly his deity in action. When he would just simply walk through a locked door, that wasn't his humanity on display there. That was his deity on display. But yet at other times, when he was tired and he was asleep in the hinder part of the ship, what are you seeing on display? You see his humanity declared there. So there are times you see him clearly subject to creation and the laws of creation as the Son of Man. But as the Son of God, he's above all these things. And he has eternity in his hands. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Father, or he is the originator, if you will, of eternity. You have eternal life because of him. He is the one who has given us life eternal. And thank God that he has the ability that in his possession is life eternal. And he has extended that to you and to me. That word everlasting is an interesting word in the Bible. We often think of it as, um, you know, a, a starting time and going forward only. And it can mean that. 
Everlasting can mean a, something that would last from a starting point all the way forward. But it can also mean eternal. How do we know that? Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, we find that uh, the song of Moses, a prayer that he makes. He says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Then he says, before the mountains were brought forth, ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, from, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. He just said, from eternity to eternity, you are God. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, even before thou hast formed the earth and the world, before all that happened, he says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Here Moses, as he goes on and uh, uh, talks about God, you'll see the, the vastness of how long God has existed. He has no beginning. The Bible calls him the Ancient of Days. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, that's his uh, name there, the Ancient of Days, capital A. Meaning his days just go backwards forever and ever. There's no way how to find the starting point because there is no starting point with God. As far back as you want to go, that's how far he's existed. And as far forward as you want to look out, that's how far he will exist. That's why Moses says, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So everlasting in the Bible often means simply the same word as eternal. So here is Jesus, the everlasting father. Again, that's not giving him the title of father in the same as God the Father. It just means he is the originator of eternal life. He is the one that holds eternal life in his hands. We find in John 17 when he prayed to his father. In that high priestly prayer. He makes clear that one of the things that was given to you and I was eternal life. He says this is life eternal that they might know me, excuse me, know thee, the living God, and Jesus Christ, his son, whom thou hast sent. So Jesus says this is what eternal life is. He just defined it for us, to know the Father, but also to know the Son. Well, thank God, you and I, we know the Father right now. We've been introduced to him according to the word of God. Uh, he would not need uh, others to introduce uh, us to him. He would introduce himself to us. And he did that when you were born of the Spirit of God. He wrote uh, his laws in your inward parts and in your mind and in your heart. And he introduced himself to you that day. And then when you heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and you understood it, then you were introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that you knew his name, know who he is. And there are many people in this world that have never heard the name of Jesus, but there's coming a day that they will know him. They will have the same eternal life that you and I have, whether they've ever heard the gospel or not. The gospel is not instrumental. It is not necessary for eternal life. What the gospel does is clearly told us in the word of God, it brings life and immortality to light. It shines a light on the reality that you and I have immortal life. A life immortal by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's good to know that, is it not? That's one of the ways that we see the Lord Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace by understanding the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a lot of God's people that will never hear the gospel in this world. But they still have the same eternal life that you and I have and there's coming a day they're going to know Jesus just as well as we know Jesus, when they see his face and they behold him in righteousness, they'll know him just as well as you or I. The blessings of the gospel certainly are blessings that are deep and, and almost unfathomable. And I thank God that in this world, he has shown these things to me. But I'm also thankful to know that there are many in this world that may never know it, but I have this confidence, the Lord Jesus has the power 
to get them the glory just as well as he does me. So here Moses says, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So here Jesus is called the everlasting Father, the Father of eternity. But that word everlasting, we find it is mentioned in the Bible many, many times. In fact, 97 times this word is found in the word of God. The very first time it's found in the word of God is Genesis chapter 9. The very last time it's found is in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. And the first time that it's mentioned, it's this phrase, an everlasting covenant. The last time it's mentioned, it's, uh, this is the phrase, the everlasting gospel. I like how uh, this word everlasting begins, and I like how it ends. It begins with a covenant, and it ends with a gospel. It ends with a promise, and it ends with the good news of the promise of God. Uh, how better for God to frame this very word that describes the life that we have in Him than first of all to begin it in the word of God on a promise and end it with the telling of the good news of that promise. That's how God has introduced this theory or this thought of our everlasting life that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Genesis chapter 9, it's talking about a promise that God makes with Noah. In the days of Noah, we all know the sixth chapter, God is so fed up with the wickedness of this world, within ten generations, this world had become so immoral that it repented the Lord that he had made man. And he was going to destroy man off the face of the earth. But the Bible says in Genesis chapter 6 verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And because Noah found grace in God's eyes, uh, you and I are here to this day. If Noah had not found grace in the eyes of God, all of humanity would have been destroyed. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives were spared. And after that flood was over and they began to start life over again off of the ark, we find that God set a bow in the sky. And that bow was there for God's uh, vision. Not, I mean, it, we benefit from it. But God said every time that he looked upon it, he would remember his covenant. He says, the bow shall be in the cloud and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. So notice again what God says. The very first time that this word everlasting is ever found in the word of God, God says, I'm setting a bow in the cloud. I'll look upon it that I may remember the ever... Now, don't worry. God would never forget anyway. <laughs> but God says, every time I look at that bow, every time you see a rainbow, God sees it as well. And I don't know how many rainbows maybe exist on the earth, all over the earth, right now at this present moment. I suspect somewhere on the earth there's one right now, and in the next moment will be another. In other words, God is continually reminded of an everlasting promise or covenant that he made with every living creature on the earth. Notice again, he says, he made this with every living creature. Uh, it didn't matter whether they're wicked or righteous, man or beast. God says, I've made this promise, this covenant, it's an everlasting covenant, with every living creature upon the earth. What's the promise? The promise is that God would never again destroy this earth or this world worldwide with a flood. Now obviously there's localized flooding that still occurs and has occurred all the way back to when God gave this promise. But God says, I will never again do what I have done here. I will never again destroy all living creatures on the earth. I won't do that a second time. That was a one and done. God did it and it's over. He'll never again destroy all creatures upon the earth. Now there's coming a day that God will destroy the earth and he's going to destroy certain people on the earth with everlasting fire and destruction. 
That word everlasting also applies uh, to the uh, punishment due to the wicked uh, that's coming their direction. It's going to happen to them. But the Bible tells us we will never again see a worldwide flood. Uh, you know, uh, global warming, of course, they've had to change the terminology for that over the last few years because all of a sudden ice caps were back and stronger uh, than they were before Al Gore started going all over the world telling about it. Um, now, I understand, uh, you know, I, I wish uh, we could see a little of it today. Uh, I have not enjoyed the last couple days at all. Uh, one of the great benefits of God sending us to Florida was not having to deal with cold weather anymore. And something's gone drastically wrong when the weather gets this way down here. Uh, that's one of the few benefits, I'm not talking about y'all, but one of the few benefits of living in Florida is not having to put up with that kind of weather. And so when it happens, things just seem horribly and terribly wrong. But anyway, uh, people are so worried that the seas are rising. What I've never understood about that, you know, I can take a glass of water. I can put ice in that glass of water. And you take that same glass of water and let it sit there. And even when that ice melts, you know what happens? I still have the same amount of liquid in that glass. But they're so concerned because there's uh, polar ice caps melting. And because of that, sea levels will rise. And all of a sudden, we're going to lose real estate here upon the earth. What I don't understand what happens in a glass here, this glass has a boundary, does it not? If I put ice in it, that water seems to need to go somewhere. Well, I understand that all that ice is, is a solid of a liquid that's in a solid state. And when it goes back to a liquid state, I still have the exact same amount. Do we not? I mean, I learned that just in grade school science. Uh, I think that was in the fifth grade that I learned that lesson. And so when they try to scare you or me about rising sea levels, and all of a sudden, if you live in coastal areas like we do, all of a sudden our homes may be gone. Don't listen to that. You know, I wasn't alive for it, but I heard my grandparents talk about it a lot. In the 70s, they were very concerned that the earth was cooling. Just 40 years later, worry about it warming. Well, when that didn't pan out, they had to change terminology from, you know, global warming to climate change. That way they can just capture it all. Well, in the 70s, they were very concerned about the uh, planet cooling down. What happened? All of a sudden, shortage of fuel, shortages of other things as well, an economy that skyrocketed, I mean, that plummeted, inflation that skyrocketed. All of a sudden, when you want to buy a house, it costs you 18% interest. Now here we are, 40-something years later, they've just flipped the script a little bit and says now the planet's warming, and what's going on right now? Massive inflation, interest rates on the rise, and we find ourselves in almost the exact same crisis that we saw ourselves in the 1970s. Very interesting to me. Now, I may be somewhat of a conspiracy theorist about all that, but it just seems odd that it all works out that way. Anyway, here God says to Noah, I'm making an everlasting covenant. And he's also going to tell Noah, he says, as long as the earth remaineth. Notice that, as long as the earth remaineth. He says there'll be seed time, there'll be harvest. What does that tell me? That means there's going to be a spring and there's going to be a fall. Now it's interesting that God specifically says springtime and harvest. Uh, that lets me know uh, seed time, excuse me, seed time and harvest. He doesn't say there'll always be a summer and a winter, which is basically all we get here in Florida. Uh, but anyway... Uh, worldwide, generally, you have four seasons. Uh, you have autumn, winter, spring, and summer. But here God tells Noah, he says, so long as the earth remaineth, there'll be seed time and there'll be harvest. What does God do? He comes in the middle time. Not the extremes of summer and winter. He picks out springtime and fall. 
he says, and long as the earth remains, there's going to be this moderate time of a springtime, or seed time, excuse me, I keep saying seed time and a harvest. He says there will be seed time and harvest. There will be cold and heat. There will be summer, there will be winter. There will be darkness and there will be light. In other words, the seasons that we see come and go on a daily basis, meaning darkness and light, the sun rising and setting, that's going to keep going on. There's going to be cold, there's going to be hot. And you and I are going to continue to be blessed with a seed time and a harvest time. Now that doesn't mean there won't be years of pestilence, years of drought. That's obviously going to happen. But he says, generally speaking, as long as the earth remains, you're going to experience a seed time, a harvest, a winter and a summer. You're going to experience night and you're going to experience day. So he says, that's going to just keep happening all the way to the end of the world. So you don't need to be afraid of the so-called scientists trying to scare us to death that our earth is being destroyed uh, because we still drive uh, uh, vehicles uh, operated on fossil fuels, that they call it. Uh, anyway, um, you don't have to go to an electric engine all of a sudden to save the planet, okay? And now that I work in the power industry, I had a meeting not too long ago, and I know this is getting a little further off topic. of it. I was sitting with a top engineer for Florida Power and Light. He's, this, he's in his 40th year with FPNL. I've gotten to know that man, very, very intelligent man. Uh, one of the smartest men about the electric grid and electric systems that I've ever, ever encountered. And there's a reason that he's the top man when it comes to engineering for all of FPNL's transmission lines. Anyway, I've gotten to spend a lot of time. His name's Daniel Haronik. Uh, I've asked him, I says, Daniel, what's the best kind of power? He says, well, the best kind that we could use is nuclear. He says, but it's not politically correct. He says, so we're buying up a lot of good farmland and we've got a lot of good pasture land and we're putting these solar panels on. He says, all we're doing is wasting good farmland and wasting good land that you could uh, plant ground, uh, plant crops and harvest them. We're just wasting, uh, this may get back to him anyway. Uh, FPNL may not be too happy because they're trying to buy up solar farms right now. But anyway, uh, I'm letting out the secret away. It's just a, it's, he says, it's just a waste of money. But the federal government, of course, is behind it. So they're putting a lot of money towards that. So we have this net zero policy. In other words, we're supposed to have no carbon emissions from fossil fuels by 2030, I think it is. Anyway, the point is, you have even some of the wisest people in this world realize that a lot of what those folks that are pushing the Green New Deal, they realize it's just a fantasy, it's never going to work, and it's not going to do anything to help save this planet. They recognize that, they know that, and by the way, so do the ones who push it. Anyway, here God makes a promise. He says, this is my every, everlasting covenant. He says, with every living creature on the earth, that every time I see this bow that I set in the cloud, I will remember the covenant. That's encouraging to me. God will always remember that he's promised that the natural seasons and cycles of life will continue on until he dispatches his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take his bride home and destroy the wicked uh, from off the earth and take this earth and wrap it up like a vesture and destroy it with fire. So until that day comes, I'm not going to worry about what all these scientists say are going to happen in some major destructive way. I'm not worried about asteroids hurtling through the, atmosphere, uh, through the, uh, through the uh, outer space hitting the earth. If you know, there's certain planets and our moon that God has set out in very specific spots to catch those things, to keep them from hitting the earth. Uh, God, again, is a wonderful counselor. He knew what he was doing when he set up this planet for you and I to dwell upon. 
Again, the very last time that God uses this word is found in Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation chapter 14, we find that John says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. Now, when you read the book of Revelation, and I encourage you to read it, the Bible says, blessed is he who reads this book. He doesn't say blessed is he who understands it. <laughs> uh, I, I don't understand it all, but I still enjoy reading it because there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful pictures therein. And there's also a lot of pictures there of a lot of trouble and a lot of turmoil that God's people will go through and have gone through. Well, that's just been the experience of the children of God all the way back to the fall, has it not? Uh, times of blessing, times of trial. Uh, times where the trial ends and more blessings come. Sometimes in the middle of a blessing, there's a trial right there too. That's all Revelation is telling us about, that God's people are going to be afflicted uh, from the time of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ until he comes back again. But at the same time, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and the last. He's going to take care of us and he's going to provide for us. He's going to bless us. Well, here it says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. John in Revelation is seeing heaven opened up many times. I mean, this book is a fabulous book. Here John sees heaven opened. And in this occasion, he said, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. Notice this, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. So here's what this angel's flying across heaven doing. He has the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. He says to every nation, every kindred, every tongue, every people. In other words, it's not limited to one race. It's not limited to one time frame. He says this is for all of God's people all over the earth. It doesn't matter uh, what nation you live in. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter what tribe you come from. If you're one of the children of God, he says, here this angel is flying in the midst of heaven, and he's preaching the everlasting gospel to them that dwell upon the earth. And what's the contents that he's preaching? He says, fear God and give glory to him. I mean, I don't know what better uh, thing to tell God's people. Fear God. Don't fear the things going on in this world. Don't fear the circumstances you see here. Uh, fear God who's over the circumstances and give glory to him. That's what the angel flew across heaven uh, preaching. Again, he had the everlasting gospel. That's a gospel that will go on forever and ever. Uh, you and I are to fear God and we're to give glory to him. And when you and I arrive into heaven itself, that's what we're going to do. We're going to give glory to God throughout all the days of eternity. Thankfully, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you and I are given the opportunity to do a little of that while we live here in this life now. We turn to Hebrews 13. In Hebrews chapter 13, we find as Paul wraps up the book to the Hebrew nation, he says this, now the God, this is verse 20, Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. I love that phrase about the Lord Jesus. As you know, Peter calls him the chief shepherd, and John is called the good shepherd by Jesus himself. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Here Paul calls him the great shepherd, and Peter calls him the chief shepherd. And I'm thankful that he's all three. He's the chief shepherd. There's no one above him. He's the good shepherd. That means his love towards you is a pure love. He's a great shepherd. That means he has the authority and the power to do that which he said he'll do. So you don't have some meek shepherd that's unable. You have one who's very strong. Uh, we know that he's uh, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And thankfully, he's not only the good shepherd and the chief shepherd, but here Paul says he's the great shepherd. So again, he says, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. How? Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He says, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here the Apostle Paul says, Jesus Christ was brought again from the dead. How? Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now he says, my prayer to him that was brought back from the dead... He says to make you perfect, that means complete in every good work, to do His will, working you that which is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. That's the strength you'll, where you'll get the strength to do it. He says to whom, Jesus, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now before he gets there again, notice what he says. Now the God of peace. Now Jesus once again in Isaiah chapter 9 is called the Prince of Peace. Here God is called the God of peace. And thank God He is the God of peace. Peace does not belong to anybody else. You know, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, not as the world. Uh, the world, their peace is a very short-lived peace. We've had presidents, we've had uh, uh, kings, we have had men of this world that have labored for peace on this earth. And they have tried and tried and tried. Back in, uh, during the world, First World War, President Woodrow Wilson, one of the great things he wanted to accomplish before he left office was the League of Nations to be formed so that there would be no more worldwide war. Well, what they really wanted was worldwide control. Well, he wasn't able to get that accomplished. It fell apart. Well, they got it accomplished after World War II, did they not? We have the United Nations now. Of course, it's a very almost useless entity. It hasn't brought peace. How many wars have happened uh, since the ending of World War II? We've been involved in several major ones ourselves. In fact, they barely got that thing ratified, and there we were in Korea. Uh, Brother Julian was spending time over there in the United Nations just barely getting off the ground. They couldn't even stop war back then when everybody was on board with that thing. And then you have the Vietnam War just a few years after that. And then, of course, uh, we have the Iraq War and Afghanistan War. And there's just wars going on everywhere in this world right now. There's a reason they're sending Brother Toby overseas. Uh, uh, there's reasons for that because this world is always in a state of war somewhere. There may be individuals that cry, peace, peace, but be careful when they do, because the Bible says, then comes sudden destruction. But here we have, thank God, the one we serve who is the God of peace, and the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Prince of Peace. He says, now the God of peace that brought again from our, the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, how, how did God bring him back from the dead? He says, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now, this is not the same covenant that God spoke of in Genesis chapter 9, the first time the word everlasting is used. There was an everlasting covenant that God made with every living creature in Genesis 9. But that's not the covenant that God used the blood of to bring Jesus back from the dead. It's a different covenant altogether. It's a covenant that was made before time even existed. It was a covenant that God made with God. It's called the eternal covenant. Some call it the new covenant. And it is because it's displayed for us clearly in the New Testament era. But it's a covenant that's older than the world itself. And it's a very simple covenant, even though it embraces great truth. It's this simple. God the Father makes a promise to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son makes a promise to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit makes a promise to God the Father and God the Son. So you have all three making promises one to another. 
It's not a covenant based on your promise. It's not a covenant based on what you can do. It's not a promise based on anything that you and I could contribute to it. We are contained in it, but we are not active whatsoever in accomplishing it. Now, what did God the Father promise to His Son and to the Spirit? He promised this, that He would elect a people and He would love that people and He would give that people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So then the Lord Jesus makes this promise to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that the people that God elected and loved before the world began, he would come to this world and he would die for, and in his death he would successfully vindicate every child of God and declare us holy because his righteousness would be applied to us. And then God the Spirit makes this promise, that the ones that Jesus died for, that God the Father loved, he would keep us preserved, he would give us eternal life, uh, in regeneration, he would keep us in that life until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, which the last part of the promise is that, that Jesus will return the second time to take all the children of God collectively home, body, soul, and spirit. That's the everlasting covenant in a nutshell right there. In fact, I can't go a whole lot deeper into it. It's that simple. It's very basic, but very blessed. I thank God that promise was made. So now read that again. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. So the very covenant that Jesus shed his blood under is the very power by which Jesus was brought forth from the dead. You know, that tells me that him coming forth from the dead, that his part of the covenant had been successfully completed. That means that Jesus vindicated. That means you and I were declared not get holy by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. That means that Jesus was successful in what he intended to do. Well, what was his intent? Well, that was made clear when the angel came to his stepfather, not a step, yeah, his stepfather, Joseph, and told him, fear not, to take unto thee Mary to be thy wife. He goes on and goes through all that uh, description of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, and you're to call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Either did it or he didn't. According to this, Hebrews 13, because he came from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant tells me he saved his people from their sins. Now, if Jesus did that, which I believe fully that he did, we find that he says he would save us. Paul says he has saved us, who has saved us and called us with a holy cause. So Paul says he's done it. Jesus said he would do it. Paul said he did do it. The only place I can find where it clearly shows he did it was at Calvary. So it's done. So if Jesus fulfilled his part of the covenant, which, by the way, seems the most difficult part of it all, uh, God the Holy Spirit preserving our life and giving us life through the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ seems easier to me than the Son of God coming into this world, becoming a man, suffering the eternal wrath of God in a finite period of time and satisfying it so that you and I would be perfected forever, his righteousness being transferred to you and I, that seems a lot more difficult part of the promise than what the Father and the Son had to do. Now that's not to say that they are not faithful in their part. They are. But if the Lord Jesus Christ successfully did what he said he would do, then I can trust that the Father is going to do what he said he would, and God the Spirit will do what he said he would do. So again, he says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect, make you complete. He says, in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ to whom be glory, both now and forever. Amen.
We could go all over the Bible. I want to go to one more place and then we'll close. In the book of Isaiah again, we find that as Isaiah begins to write, all of the blessings of the coming of the Messiah, especially you get to chapter 40 and you read chapters 40 to the end. Now you'll still find in those chapters some troubles that God's people will go through. But when you read Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, you're going to find a lot of judgment. But in chapter 40 through chapter 66, you're going to find a lot talked about the Messiah. A lot talked about a single man coming to this world and bringing redemption. And so when I read Isaiah, it's obviously my favorite when I get to chapter 40 and go forward. And it's interesting to me, when you get to the 40th chapter of the book of the Bible, Matthew, all of a sudden things drastically change. The first 39 books of the Bible do a lot with law, a lot with judgment. A lot about sin. And then you have in Matthew chapter 1, the New Testament, the 40th book of the Bible, chapter, yeah, 40th book of the Bible, all of a sudden things take a different tone altogether. Same thing in the book of Isaiah. It's interesting. So you read chapters 1 through 39, and you read a lot about judgment, affliction, and trial. Then you turn to chapter 40, verse 1, and what does it say? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably unto Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, and she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So you take up all the sins that you've ever committed, and I promise you the blessings of God will double that. And I don't mean that your sins are going to be magnified. What it means is your blessings are going to be magnified well above all the sins you've ever committed. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That's all that he's saying there when we received the Lord's hand double for all of our sins. It's just letting us know that God's grace abounds. Well, in the middle of all that beautiful portion of Isaiah, we come to Isaiah chapter 51, verse 11. It says, Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I love that verse. Think about it again. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy. I like that. You know, my joy in this world, it's sometimes short-lived. Uh, there's times that I am be full of joy. And something drastic happened in my life, or something minor, and all of a sudden my joy dissipates and goes out the window. But there's a joy that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that's an everlasting joy. It'll never go away. Notice again, he says, Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. Everlasting joy shall be upon their head. There's a reason he says it's upon their head. It's always there. Whether or not I live in that joy or not is dependent on my attitude, my perspective, my outlook, and what I'm willing to do. But it's there for me, and it's an everlasting joy. He says, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I find it interesting that in the word of God, sorrow and mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, are temporary. But joy, salvation, redemption, God's covenant are everlasting. They're always contrasted that way. When you're talking about God's elect, all of our troubles... They're always temporal, but our blessings, they're eternal, which is interesting because Paul speaks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he says, for our lot affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look at the things which are not seen. For the things which are 
seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So he just said that our light affliction. Now, obviously, you've got to be cautious about that term. If you were to go into a hospital room and somebody just had major surgery, like what Brother Eddie had months ago, if I went in there right after that surgery was over and said, Brother Eddie, how are you doing in your light affliction? That would not be a very compassionate thing to do or say, would it not? So obviously, from our perspective, trouble seems a lot more deep and dire than it does from God's perspective. But when you and I look at things through God's perspective, as we should, it also becomes very light. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. And the Bible tells us in James that our life is a vapor. It's just a mist of smoke. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So your affliction, even if it lasts from birth to death, and you live to say 90-something years old, you know what Moses said there in Psalm 90 when he says, from everlasting to everlasting thou art God? He says, our life is spent as a tale that is told, like a short story. So the length of our life, whether it be 90 or 100 years, is still very short in comparison to what we have in glory. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, chapter, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. So again, he says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. So you may think that your affliction is very dire and it's long-lasting. From God's perspective, it's light and it's also very short. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, he says, works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. That phrase has always mystified me. I still don't really understand it. He says that my light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for me an exceeding eternal weight of glory. While, it's conditional, while I don't look at things seen, but instead look at things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are eternal, and the things which are not seen are temporal. So God has just told me through the pen of Paul that I, if I want my afflictions to work for me a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, if they will be a blessing in my life that will draw me near to the Lord, and that's the best way I know to describe that part of that text, then there's something that I have to do, and that is that I have to look at things unseen. I have to look at heaven that I cannot see yet. I've got to look at the blessings that I have of an eternal life in the glories of heaven where there's no pain or sorrow, where mourning and sorrow will flee away, where there'll be no tears because they'll all be wiped away by the hand of God. There'll be no sorrow nor crying. Death will pass away. All sickness will be gone. So those are the things that I've got to look at. But those are things that I can't see. But yet I'm still supposed to look at those things. Well, it's very easy to look at the things that I can see. Right now, I'm having a lot of trouble in my back. I have a lot of trouble in my shoulder. And it's very easy to look at that. Very, very easy. Because every wrong move, I feel it. And so my mind goes to that. So it's hard to not think about that and put my eyes on far better things. You may have some other kind of affliction right now. You may have a financial affliction. You may have an emotional affliction. You may have the affliction of the loss of somebody you love. You may be experiencing those things, and all you can think about is that. But the best thing you do is take your eyes off of that and put your eyes on things you cannot see. And that is you put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, the Everlasting Father, the Father of Eternity. You put your mind on Him. You put your mind on Heaven. You put your mind on the time when all sorrow and all mourning shall flee away. And you just remember that you have an everlasting joy that's upon your head. So therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return unto Zion with singing. And we ought to come with great gladness because of the everlasting promise that's been made uh, by God Himself that's proclaimed to us through the everlasting gospel. <laughs> And thank God we serve the everlasting Father in all of that.
And we ought to praise his name and thank him and remember that the worst that we ever have here cannot even begin to compare with the greatness that we're going to experience there. And even the good that we experience here, as good as it is, and thank God that we have those moments, it can't even begin to compare to the glory. I love how Paul said, the glory that shall be revealed not just to us, and it will, but that shall be revealed in us. May God bless you, sir.